Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 6, A Time for War. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. I have to admit, I'm very excited about today's episode, because we'll be talking about one of my favorites among the lesser-known saints of the church. If you've already heard of him, I'll be very impressed, but after today, I guarantee you'll be glad you have. This is the story of a man who risked everything, his life, his legacy, and his empire, to defend his fellow Christians from persecution. The warrior king of Ethiopia, Saint Caleb. Caleb ruled the kingdom of Aksum in modern-day Ethiopia during the early 6th century. We know next to nothing about his life before he came to the throne, but we know much more about his time and place. Caleb lived in the turbulent age of late antiquity, when the last great empires of the ancient world, Rome and Persia, were tottering on the verge of collapse. Not long before Caleb was born, the western half of the Roman Empire had been overrun by Germanic barbarians, while its eastern half, known today as the Byzantine Empire, was fighting for survival against enemies on all sides. To make matters worse, the centuries surrounding the fall of Rome were rife with religious upheaval, to which Christianity was not at all immune. The Eastern churches in particular suffered from nearly endless conflicts over almost any aspect of the faith you can imagine, from abstract points of theology to the worldly powers of bishops. There are so many heresies, schisms, excommunications, and other controversies in this era that you could spend a lifetime studying them and still find more to learn. Suffice it to say that as the empires of the old world crumbled, taking with them their pagan ways, religion and politics became a single battleground to decide who would rule among the ruins. The kingdom of Aksum, or Ethiopia, had never been a great empire. It had long lain on the edge of the classical world, nestled beside the jungles and deserts that cut off sub-Saharan Africa from the cultures of the Mediterranean. In the ancient Greek and Roman imagination, Ethiopia was a land of exotic delights. According to the historian Herodotus, Ethiopians were the most beautiful people on earth, and lived extraordinarily long lives. With the coming of Christianity to the Greco-Roman world, Ethiopia received another layer of alluring mystery, as it was widely considered the home of the Queen of Sheba the seductive traveler who meets with King Solomon in the Bible. But even as Greeks and Romans were dreaming about the wonders of Ethiopia, their new faith was finding its own way to that far southern land. It probably began with the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch by St. Philip 
as told in the Acts of the Apostles, and it continued with the missions of St. Fremensius in the early 4th century. By the year 333, Christianity had made such headway that the king himself converted. His name was Izana, and he, like Caleb, is venerated as a saint. Izana declared Christianity the state religion of Aksum, making Ethiopia the second country in the world following Armenia to become officially Christian. In the centuries that followed, the Ethiopians developed a distinct and colorful form of Christianity, replete with rock churches carved from the earth and monasteries perched on precarious mountaintops. From its coastline on the Red Sea, the Kingdom of Aksum sat at the center of maritime trade between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. Merchants from as far as China passed through Ethiopian ports, with gold, ivory, incense, emeralds, spices, and many other luxuries changing hands in Aksum. The realm grew rich and powerful, without losing sight of its Christian roots. But it was not the only nation on the edge of the late antique world. Across the Red Sea, on the shores of modern-day Yemen, lay the Arab kingdom of Himyar. Like Aksum, Himyar was a prosperous trading hub, the producer of most of the world's frankincense, and it was home to a large minority of Arab Christians. These converts were often merchants, connected to the Christian cultures of Aksum, Egypt, and Rome, but they lived in a pagan land, surrounded by Arabs who resented their faith and envied their wealth. You can probably guess where this story is going. In the early 6th century, a king came to power in Himyar, who was determined to purge Christians from his land, and, conveniently, steal their riches in the process. The new ruler was named Yusuf, but he's better known by his Arabic nickname, Dunuwas, or the one with sidelocks. This strange title refers to his faith, for although Dunuwas had been born a pagan, he had converted to Judaism shortly after taking the throne of Himyar. The conversion of Dunuwas may have been genuine. He certainly stood out from his fellow Arabs for his adherence to Jewish practices, like growing out his sidelocks. But there were also more cynical reasons for his change of faith and his subsequent move against Christianity. Namely, the chance to plunder the wealth of his Christian subjects and gain favor with his powerful neighbors in Persia, whose shahs had long been the enemies of Christian Rome. But whatever the reason behind it, the fact remains clear. In the year 519, Dunawas used his conversion to Judaism as a pretext to attack the Christians of Himyar. He was not the first king of Himyar to convert to Judaism for political ends, nor was he the first to persecute Christians, but he would be the last. It did not take long for word of the persecutions in Himyar, which ranged from arbitrary fines to outright martyrdom, to cross the Red Sea into Aksum. 
When the news reached the royal courts, King Caleb decided to act. He would not allow his brothers and sisters in Christ to be punished for their faith on his very doorstep. And so the king marshaled his men and made ready to sail for Himyar. The war that followed was swift and effective. It can hardly be called a campaign. In a single battle, or at most a few engagements, Caleb soundly defeated the Himyarites and sent their ruler literally running for the hills. Evidently, Dunuas, when coming up with his bright idea to persecute the church, had not counted on anyone standing up to him, and he was caught utterly unprepared for Caleb's response. Even so, Caleb was merciful in victory. Despite his overwhelming strength, he did not pillage Himyar for his own gain, or even try to hunt down the fugitive Dunuas. Instead, he appointed a viceroy to keep the peace and ensure the fair treatment of Christians. Believing his work done, the king returned to Aksum. All was quiet for a few years. Under their new protector, life returned to normal for the Christians of Himyar. Better than normal, as for the first time they found themselves living under Christian rule. But it was not to last. Around 523, the viceroy of Himyar died, apparently from natural causes, though the timing was convenient. Dunuwas did not waste a moment in rallying his supporters and sweeping down from the hills where he'd been hiding to retake his realm. In his lust for revenge, he butchered every Christian he could find and burned their churches. Coming at the head of an army to the city of Najran, where Caleb's viceroy had lived, Dunuas threatened the inhabitants with death if they would not renounce Christianity. They were not moved, and their gates remained closed when Dunuas held up a cross and demanded they blaspheme the sign of their savior's passion. Knowing he would have to besiege the city if its people would not surrender, and knowing the man he feared most would soon learn of his crimes, Dunuas changed his strategy. Instead of threatening death, he promised mercy to the people of Najran if they would open their gates and pay him tribute as king. The townsfolk may well have seen through this ruse, but they were not in a strong position to argue. Dunuas had timed his attack well. It was storm season in the Red Sea, making any travel from Africa to Arabia impossible. Even if King Caleb heard the news in time, there would be nothing he could do for many months. Unsure if they could survive a long siege, the people of Najran must have felt they had little choice but to trust Dunuwas. No doubt with great reluctance, but under the spell of fear, they opened their gates. But Dunuwas had no intention of keeping his word. Once he had entered Najran, he ordered the city's Christians to be slaughtered. I've read different accounts of the massacre that ensued, with a death toll somewhere between 4,000 and 20,000. Even if we take the most conservative figure, we're still looking 
at thousands of martyrs. Among the slain were the leaders of Najran's Christian community, Saints Arathas and Ruma, a married couple who had warned their neighbors against opening the gates to no avail. When the killing was complete, Dunawas had the bodies of his victims thrown into a ditch and burned, earning himself the epithet Sahib al-Ukhdud, Lord of the Trench. The treachery at Najran was so cruel, even by the standards of the time, that it left a deep impression in the memory of Arabs forever after. Almost a century later, a merchant in the distant city of Mecca would lament the massacre in verse. Woe to the makers of the pits, a fire fed with fuel. Behold, they sat against the fire and watched what they did to the believers. The merchant, of course, was named Muhammad, and the brutality of Dunuwas had found its way into the Quran. With no ships crossing the Red Sea in storm season, word of the atrocity was slow to reach King Caleb. Instead, the tale traveled by land across the cities and deserts of Arabia, spread not only by horrified Christians, but by Dunuwas himself, who bragged about his victory at Najran, to his fellow Arab chiefs. Before long, the news had reached the borders of the Byzantine Empire, and drew the attention of the courts at Constantinople. The emperor at the time was a man named Justin, uncle of the famous Justinian, who would build the church of Hagia Sophia. Justin was an impressive man in his own right, Born a peasant, he'd risen through the ranks of the army to become an imperial bodyguard, only to find himself acclaimed emperor after his predecessor died of old age. Despite all the decadence and intrigue of Byzantine palace life, Justin never lost his common touch. He remained a clear-headed soldier and a devout Orthodox Christian. When he heard of the massacre at Najran, the Emperor knew that as the champion of Christians worldwide, he had to do something, even if his own armies couldn't march all the way to Himyar. Justin no doubt grieved that he could not deal justice to Dunuas himself. But he did know someone who could. In January of 524, a letter arrived at King Caleb's courts in Aksum. Written by the Emperor Justin himself, it told of the return of Dunuwas and the horrors he had inflicted upon the Christians of Himyar. Accompanying the letter was a silver vessel containing the Eucharist, sent by the Patriarch of Alexandria to fortify the king for what lay ahead. At once, Caleb gathered his warriors, and even in the midst of the storm season, he prepared to sail to Arabia. On the night before his journey, he marched in solemn procession to church to humble himself before God. Then he made ready for war. Crossing the Red Sea in winter was a daring move, 
Some of Caleb's men may not have survived the stormy voyage. Yet, the risk paid off, for it denied Dunuas time to complete his defenses. The King of Himyar was more prepared than he had been the first time, blocking the Straits of Aden with a great chain. But he was apparently not expecting the size, speed, and vigor of Caleb's expedition. The ocean favored Caleb, with great waves bearing his ships over the chain into enemy waters. Though their army had been split in two by the storms, the Ethiopians landed in good time, availed themselves in battle, and pressed inland to claim the city of Zafar, which surrendered without a siege. With his army in shambles, Dunuwas saw that the end was in sight. The traditional story goes that he killed himself by riding his horse into the Red Sea. The death of Dunuwas marked the end of the Kingdom of Himyar. Realizing that the Christians of Southern Arabia would never be safe under pagan or Jewish rule, Caleb finally added the region to his own realm, and many of his new subjects willingly embraced Christianity. They would largely remain Christian until the conquest of Arabia by a certain merchant from Mecca in the next century, but that's a tale for another time. With his work complete at long last, King Caleb abdicated the throne of Aksum and retired to a monastery for the rest of his earthly days. There he lived the life of an ascetic hermit, in a cell you can supposedly still visit today, and sent his crown as a gift to the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. In some ways, Caleb feels more like a figure out of the Old Testament than a conventional Christian saint. He was a warrior who fought in the name of God, as dauntless in battle as humble in prayer. Today, many Christians are uncomfortable having men like Caleb in our history. It's fashionable to dismiss the concept of just war, let alone holy war, as an outdated distortion of our faith. In our cynical age, where wars between the secular West and the fundamentalist forces of jihad drag on for decades, claim thousands of lives, and appear to achieve very little good, it's perfectly understandable that we've grown weary of war itself. And indeed, we should be very cautious whenever we contemplate war, even for a supposedly good cause. It's easy for moral slogans like freedom and human rights to conceal Machiavellian power struggles that lead to chaos destruction, and suffering. All the same, the story of Caleb reminds us that Christians are not pacifists. From scripture to the fathers and doctors of the church, the sources of our faith are clear that some wars can be just, that under some circumstances, violence may be the only ethical option facing a ruler. Certainly, Caleb's campaigns against Dunuas meet the criteria laid down by St. Thomas Aquinas for just wars. He fought for a righteous cause, the defense of persecuted Christians, using his lawful authority against an enemy 
who would not listen to reason. He had a strong chance of success. He won a better outcome, freeing the Christians of Himyar from persecution, and he inflicted no harm out of proportion with the evil he was trying to end. In hindsight, the most we might say against Caleb is that he could have tried to end the persecution through diplomacy, but I think that would be projecting the realities of the modern worlds onto those of antiquity. In Caleb's time, communications between countries could take months and had no guarantee of success. Diplomacy was not a matter of writing a strongly worded email. And in any case, Dunawas made it clear through his actions that he would not be stopped by words. Caleb learned about the suffering of Christians in his own backyard, and fought to bring it to an end. For that, he deserves our praise. Like Joshua, David, and the other holy warriors of the Old Testament before him, and like St. Louis and the Crusaders after him, Caleb teaches us that sometimes being a soldier of Christ is more than a metaphor. Indeed, you could see Caleb as the first crusader, more than 500 years before the first crusade. He has long been venerated as a saint, under the name Elisban, or the Blessed, not only by Ethiopian Christians, but also by Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. This may be a bit surprising, as the Ethiopian church in Caleb's day was divided from Rome and Constantinople by the pedantic controversy over Miaphysitism, the belief that Christ had one nature, both human and divine, as opposed to his having two natures, one human, the other divine. In more recent times, agreements between popes and patriarchs have largely resolved that division, which had more to do with politics than theology. But even before this modern reconciliation, the subtle differences between the Roman, Greek, and Ethiopian understandings of the nature of Christ did not prevent any of those churches from seeing Caleb as a saint. He remains for that reason a symbol of Christian unity, and we ought to invoke his intercession as we work to find common ground with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Saint Caleb Elisban is commemorated on the 28th of May in Ethiopian Orthodoxy, the 24th of October in Eastern Orthodoxy, and the 27th of October in the Catholic Church. He is not, to my knowledge, the official patron of any cause, but I think it's fair to see him as a patron of persecuted Christians, courageous leaders, and all those who fight for Christ. Caleb was a model of kingship, caring so little for his own wealth and power that he gave it all up when his task was done, as well as a model of masculine virtue. Even those of us who don't wear crowns can learn a lot from Caleb about living heroic lives, standing up for our faith in little ways as well as large ones, resisting persecution without persecuting others. It's for that reason along with the epic story of his adventure, that he's one of my favorite saints. May St. Caleb Elisban, King of Ethiopia, holy warrior, and defender of the church in need, 
Come to our aid, now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.